This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Few Bible interpreters in the history of the church have been as prolific and influential as John Calvin. Love or hate him, one cannot ignore him. He wrote commentaries upon much of Scripture. As a humanist, he was a careful, sensitive reader of texts. He paid careful attention to both the divine and human authors of the biblical text, as well as to the literary qualities of Scripture. So even though there is no shortage of biblical commentators whom one might consult, biblical scholars, pastors, theologians, theologians, and historians still consult Calvin's biblical commentaries. One of those who studies Calvin's use and interpretation of Scripture is Dr. Sujin Pak. She is Associate Professor of the History of Christianity, and she's Vice Dean of Academic Affairs in the Duke Divinity School at Duke University. Her studies focus on late medieval and Reformation-era Christianity. She's given attention to Jewish-Christian relations in the history of biblical exegesis. She's author of The Reformation of Prophecy, Early Modern Interpretations of the Prophet and Old Testament Prophecy 2018 from Oxford University Press, and The Judaizing Calvin, 16th Century Debates Over the Messianic Psalms. That was published in 2010 also from Oxford University Press. She's a Calvin scholar, of course, and she's on campus this week at the invitation of the Westminster Student Association to give two lectures. The first, which she gave this morning, is Calvin and Metaphorical Readings of Scripture Beyond Literal and Allegorical Reading. And the second, tomorrow, as we sit here in the studio, Marie Dontier, a prophetic and biblical 16th century voice. You can find both of these lectures online at wscal.edu. Hello, Dr. Pack, and welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. It's great to be here. How do you like to be addressed? Um, Dr. Pack is good. Okay, there we go. And that is what I will call you. Well, you have deep roots in the Methodist tradition, according to your biography. How did you become, as a good Methodist, attracted to Calvin? Great question. So... I actually started off studying exegesis and studying history of Jewish-Christian relations, and I ended up taking this class with David Steinmetz during my Master's of Theological Studies. I actually took it in the last semester of my MTS as I was thinking about doing doctoral studies, was thinking I was going to do a doctoral studies in the New Testament, and then realized that David Steinmetz taught history of exegesis and brought those things together. And as I got deeper into the history of exegesis, I became very attracted to Calvin's ways of reading scripture in particular, and specifically how he reads the Old Testament. So since I'm interested in Jewish-Christian questions, how you read the Old Testament or how you address the Old Testament in the New was exactly the questions I was asking, and Calvin just really captured my imagination, that I thought he really had a profound way of addressing those questions. He didn't go immediately for the Christological reading. He seemed to give a kind of reading that was not anti-Semitic, at least in the first instance. And that was just refreshing because as I had looked at other exegesis in history, unfortunately, the anti-Semitic kinds of readings were pretty dominant and was striking that that was not true of Calvin. It's interesting that you answered the question that way because you didn't hear the introduction that I actually recorded earlier. And in that, I said that people still find Calvin as a commentator, interesting, provocative, and people who don't ordinarily do much with the history of exegesis, your typical New Testament, Old Testament commentator, 
chapter. They'll make an allusion to Luther or this or that, and oftentimes Calvin will come up. And a lot of the history of exegesis, as you well know, between the patristic period and the Reformation, that gets ignored, and a lot gets ignored between the Reformation and now, but Calvin always comes up. So it's interesting that you read him and you found him an engaging dialogue partner just because of the quality of his work with the text. Yeah, and I think he's exceptional in the ways that he bridges both the ancient ways of reading the text and the modern. So, you know, a lot of scholars say, well, is Calvin really a medieval man or is he the predecessor to modernity? And I think the answer is both. (laughs) And that's one of the other reasons why he's so intriguing. Yeah, your first book, The Judaizing Calvin, at least part of the book describes the criticism that he received after his life posthumously by a Lutheran critic, hence the title of the book, who published a treatise accusing Calvin of being Judaizing because he wasn't sufficiently Christological in his reading of the text. How do you, just as you're Saying that, I'm thinking, how does covenant fit into this? That's a big category for us, covenant theology. And understanding Calvin's covenant theology is a big task. There's a lot of disagreement about it, but it's pretty clear now that covenant was a significant theme for him Mm -hmm. as he read scripture, Mm -hmm. which would seem to connect with questions of Jewish influence and Jewish readings of the text and the like, and progressive readings of the text. Yeah. So first I'll say I'm not a specialist in covenant theology per se, so I'm sure there's many of your other fellow professors here at the school that would answer those questions way better than I. But I would say that, you know, just at the basic line of how Calvin understands the relationship between the Old and New Testament, which are in a certain way the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, Mm -hmm. you've got him having a profound sense of the unity of that, and then that affects how he reads those testaments together. So he believes God is unchanging, he believes God's sovereign, that there's one covenant and that it spans both testaments. And so I think then what I basically argue in the book, which in some ways relates to covenant, is that he, instead of going directly for those Christological readings that are what I would call prophetic Christological readings, like the Old Testament texts prophesy Christ, specifically prophesy the saving events of Christ's life, i.e. incarnation, passion, resurrection, ascension. Calvin really goes for this ecclesial reading, which I think is a very covenantal reading, that God works with God's people across time in the covenant that God has made with God's people across time that's consistent. And so when he looks at the stories of Israel or Judah, when he looks at these Old Testament texts and their histories, let alone also the prophecies and how the prophets are speaking to the people of Israel or Judah of their time, there's a covenantal aspect for him that that's God's people— that these are mirrors or ways of understanding how God speaks to God's people, how God acts with God's people, how God chastises God's people, how God shows mercy, how God corrects, and how God forgives and saves. And that's a sort of larger kind of one covenant theology in which he's then reading it with an ecclesial, you could say, covenant way of viewing things, that it spans all time, that God's actions with God's church is consistent across time. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So he moves from a discussion of an Old Testament episode or event or text to the church. That's right. And suddenly we're there. We're in that narrative. Mm -hmm. And that's our story. That's right. I agree with you. That's a profoundly covenantal way of reading. I think you're exactly right. As he responds to the Anabaptists, the unity of the covenant of grace is at the heart 
of his concern about what he sees the Anabaptists doing to the history of Scripture. You're a scholar of the history of biblical interpretation. You're a student of David Steinmetz, and you know a number of us here are genetically, intellectually related. You know, I always tell the students, Obermann begat Steinmetz, <laughs> Steinmetz begat Muller, and here we are, and it sort of trace out the various genetic connections. Why is it so important to pay attention to the history of biblical interpretation? And uh, do you think that biblical scholars are seeing the importance of it, or are they not yet getting the importance of it? How do you assess that? Great question. Um, so I have my own personal and then intellectual reasons why I think paying attention to the history of biblical interpretation really does matter. So I think I can go back to a practical sense of like when I've taught, say, a Bible study or an adult Sunday school class, I notice that one of the issues are either you go immediately to personalistic readings or you think, oh, I'm so scared to interpret this text because I might get it wrong. And what I teach this class that I teach at Duke on the history of Bible interpretation, one of my big goals is actually to show that Scripture is this beautiful gift of God. It's not that there's not boundaries. There's boundaries of right and wrong reading, but those are much more expansive rather than narrow. So when I look at the history of Bible interpretation, you can look at, say, trace a single text through time, which is what I do in the class. We trace three different texts all the way across time from looking at um, Origen, Augustine, Aquinas, Nicholas of Lyra, Luther and Calvin, to Karl Barth, and even contextual readings to, to modernity. And what you see is there's, you can perhaps trace a common shared core of your commitments of what kind of traces out the boundaries of good reading. And yet, I think as Calvin actually very well shows, there's different times and places in which that text lives and interacts with God's church for the immediate needs of its day. Like, so Calvin talks about how the goal is to really interpret scripture for the contemporary church, for the contemporary needs. So there's core truths. There's something that's lasting and eternal and continuous. And then there's all these nuanced layers of how, what you might call, what does the Spirit say to the church? And then that cracks open scriptures, um, you want to say fertility or fruitfulness, in, in that it's there's more than just one answer in any given text, while there's also still this sort of core truthfulness, right? So I just think history of Bible interpretation, I'd like to say that, like, why do I teach it? Because I want to teach my students, I want to teach members in the church to not be paralyzed by this fear that there's only one right answer. In fact, there's many possible good answers. And then what are the boundaries of that? You might say the boundaries are that are Trinity and centrality of Christ and, you know, a good ecclesiology, a good doctrine of justification. But, you know, once you have those boundaries, which you might call the analogy of faith, you might call the rule of faith, once you have those mapped out, then there's this whole fruitful playground of all kinds of beautiful, faithful readings that are possible. And hopefully you need not be paralyzed by being concerned that you have to get it right. And as we come to the text, we're not the first people to ever to read this That's text. Right. right. The folks who read the Bible before us can help us illumine the text for us, and we may learn from them. You read an older interpretation of the text, and you find out, well, that's really insightful. I'd never thought of that, never heard of that. And, you know, that seems correct. And we end up agreeing with them as well. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking to Dr. Sujin Pak, who's Associate Professor of the History of Christianity at Duke Divinity School, Duke University. The church has been reading the Bible for a long time. 
to say something really obvious, but worth saying. I've made my whole career saying obvious things that occurs to me. One of the dominant ways of interpreting scripture that developed in the patristic period began to develop and then was elaborated in the medieval period was to assume that a text would yield both a literal sense and a figurative sense, and that within that figurative sense, there were three sort of sub-senses, the allegorical, the anagogical, and the tropological. Mm. Those are technical words, and the listener may or may not know what all of those mean. So, first of all, tell us about that, and what do these senses mean, literal and figurative, and then the sub-senses? Yeah, that's right. So, it's called the medieval fourfold sense, or the quadriga, and you've got basically, like you said, the literal and what others might call the spiritual sense as the two basic sense, and then the spiritual sense is divided up into these three. Now, these three things, the allegorical, the anagogical, and the tropological, are actually aligned with the three cardinal virtues of the Christian faith. So, you talk about faith, hope, and love. So, allegory aligns with the virtue of faith, which you could then translate to, what does this text teach me to believe? So it can be somewhat doctrinal, but it's also like, what does it, aligns with that virtue of faith. Then tropological aligns with the virtue of love. What does this text teach me to do? In other words, moral, ethics, as well as who do I love and how do I act in loving ways? In other words, ethical kind of readings. And then the anagogical aligns with the virtue of hope. To what am I tending? Where is my hope? Um, you know, where is it heading? So anagogy is basically that's what you might use for more familiar words, a kind of eschatological sense, that higher sense. So a classic way to kind of put this on the ground and understand it is somebody might take the Jerusalem. So go back to the literal sense. The literal sense is usually the historical sense as well as just what do the actual words say? What's the plain sense of scripture? So Jerusalem in a literal sense is a city, you know, in the Holy Land, um, Palestine, Israel, however you want to say it. But Jerusalem as the allegorical, like what's an allegorical interpretation of Jerusalem? Well, the church will say, it's the faithful soul and how it represents actually the experience of the faithful soul. Allegorical be that Jerusalem represents the whole church and the whole church's experience. And then I guess more so the tropological then gets to that more individual person journeying and what their experiences are and that Jerusalem then uh, represents that individual person. And then the anagogical is the heavenly Jerusalem. So the earthly versus heavenly and the anagogy is then that eschatological Jerusalem. So that's one way to just sort of quickly unfold what the fourfold sense no, I appreciate that very much. For listeners who are in the sort of Presbyterian and Reformed context, I often say that um – the allegorical is the Burkhoff sense. He was one of our old early 20th century systematic theologians. The tropological or the moral is the J. Adams sense. He was a writer on counseling, and he would always ask, you know, well, what are the moral implications of this text? And the eschatological is the Voss sense, the Gerhardus Voss sense, because Voss was always pointing us to the eschatological sense of the text. So but we have these interests still in our traditions. And uh, after the Renaissance and in the Reformation, the Quadriga took quite a beating rhetorically. And yet, I always try to get my students to stop and think, well, asking what the text tells me about faith, hope, and love, right? we ought to appreciate that this wasn't just some wild-eyed, originistic invention that destroyed the text. Those are not inherently bad questions. The difficulty came in how people made use of them. Right? So, with under the anagogical, every text tended to, as you indicated to be about my soul and the journey of the soul or the church. So if Jesus stood in a boat, he didn't just stand in a boat because it was crowded. <laughs> he stood in a boat to symbolize something and then away you go. So there was an inherent problem in the way it was done, and that being subjectivism. You could make any text say anything you wanted. So 
What did Calvin do? We tend to focus, especially in our world, on the allegorical. And in some evangelical circles and in fundamentalist circles, if you can disparage someone's interpretation of scriptures as allegorical, you've discredited it. And the assumption is, well, we're just doing what Calvin did. Mm -hmm. So walk us through that a little bit, because your argument is Calvin's appropriation of the figurative was more complicated than we've sometimes led on. Right. So Calvin's clear that he rejects allegory. And what he's rejecting is some particular things. A, he's rejecting that any reading that's not rooted in the original history and literary context, as well as authorial intention, by which he means both divine and human intention, not in conflict with each other. You know, if a reading is not abiding by those principles, which he thinks allegorical reading does not, then it's not a good reading. So his rejection of allegory is a very particular, but that doesn't mean he has a flat literalistic reading, that it's only a a so-called literal plain sense. That's really important. So say that again. So on the one hand, your argument is he really did reject allegorical hermeneutics. At the same time, his understanding of the literal isn't what we might assume it was. Right. So the figural readings gets to what we talked about a little earlier, that ecclesial hermeneutic that he has in the sense of that he would say, for instance, paying attention to Old Testament history or the prophet's language, that their words both have a meaning for their time as a very historical meaning that you need to pay attention to. But then that very historical meaning can be a mirror or configure or prefigure other larger kinds of patterns of how God works with God's people. So paying attention to the history of the prophets with and how God spoke to the prophet to speak to the people for him is a way of knowing how God speaks to the church at any point of time. And so that's what I mean by a figural reading in that sense that it goes beyond, say, the immediate historical situation to be able to speak across time and give patterns and truths and comfort and conviction to God's people across time. That's one way of the figural. The other way would be to talk about how he pays attention to the actual language of scripture and the ways that maybe you might use images or metaphors to describe something. Whereas the early church would use those metaphors and perhaps what Calvin would say is launch into an allegorical reading that he didn't think had any really roots in the actual text. He would say, no, let's pay attention to either the history or let's pay attention to the actual properties of the image as the root points, as the anchor points by which then you could then figure, you could see the sign and the analogy of what the sign is trying to show and draw the similarities across time to then have understandings of what this means. So, for example, it's helpful to give concrete examples. So, if the prophets are having this language of, say, a land flowing with milk and honey, the dew in the morning fructifying the earth, like Luther would look at that, and many of the early churches would say, these are Christological images. These are Christ. These are the gospel. End of story. And Calvin says, no, no, let's pay attention to what the actual properties of these are and what they're teaching. So, fructifying the earth is to actually teach about God's fructifying um, abilities, God's nurturing and, and fertilizing abilities for the church. If you're talking about land flowing with milk and honey, you actually pay attention to this is a image of the profound generosity of God. Um, And so he wants to actually stay wedded to these anchor points and not kind of jump quickly to what he would call an allegory, which is not wedded to the meaning of the words. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul. 
for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 8474 Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Now, quickly is a really important word here, because it's not that Calvin, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, it's not that Calvin is opposed to getting to Christ when it's appropriate in the text, but he wants to get there maybe a little more patiently, whereas an allegorical approach perhaps wants to take a shortcut, just go straight to Christ, collect $200, and he wants to say, well, no, as you were saying, what are the internal properties of this text? Mm -hmm. What's the image? You know, if there's salt being talked about, well, what are the properties of salt? This morning, you connected the uh, burning bush with the fire pot, so Exodus 3 and Genesis 15, and you noted, I thought, really wonderfully, the way that Calvin tied those together, right? So, one traditional reading of the burning bush is that it is Christ, and, you know, as a preacher, one can see the attraction of that. But he wanted to do something a little different. And this is, of course, what got him criticized by people like this um, late 16th, early 17th century Lutheran theologian, Hunnius. Mm-hmm. So what did he do with those two images, the burning bush and the fiery pot from Genesis 15? Well, I mean, he was basically trying to say, what's the common property that's happening between those? And that is that they're not consumed even while they're burning. And he gives then a reading of how this is also an image of the church and how the church under persecution is not consumed, but is still sustained by God. You know, that also says to you, like, Calvin's always wanting to give a message of comfort and consolation to the church. Like, nine times out of ten, that's what he's trying to do, which is interesting, because, like, people need to hear that, because the caricature of Calvin sure. is that he's this cold, reserved, you know. He's a pastor, right? But he's very much a pastor. He's always looking to give a word of comfort. When you read his commentaries, you can hear, mm-hmm. right? You can feel that he has sat with sick people, mm-hmm. and that he's had people in his study, and he's prayed with them, and grieved with them, and he had his own griefs that he carried with him on a daily basis. I would name one other really, I mean, really helpful example. So take Psalm 22. Now, the typical reading is to jump to Psalm 22 as as literally a prayer from Christ's mouth on the cross, that Christ spoke and prayed Psalm 22 while he was being crucified on the cross. But Calvin, two-thirds of his exegesis of Psalm 22 is to illuminate how David is a model for the church. And so he goes into the historical details of how David is being chased by Saul and being persecuted by Saul, and that David's reached this point of utter despair and is praying this psalm um, to God out of this despair, because he believes that if you kind of get to this human David and his experiences, that that actually is a great way for any Christian to immediately connect with those experiences. I mean, it's one thing for Christ, but Christ is God, you know, Like, but, but when a human person is suffering and then they have this prayer that they pray, that Calvin then sees that this, you know, like you can't ignore that part of Psalm 22, but then he immediately, you know, not immediately, but so you talk about not the quick connection, but he does ultimately connect it to Christ, So because he uses this model of David and David's prayer 
prayer and, and this faithfulness of David in the midst of persecution, and then moves on to say, then of course this is also Christ's prayer. And insofar as David models the church, and insofar as we are the body of Christ, I mean, this, you know, like, like he tra- makes those connections to then have this rich understanding of what it means to be the church as the body of Christ. And so he'll say, yes, of course, this is what Christ prayed at the cross, but given just how David prays for the church, so also Christ prays it for the church. And so he brings it kind of full circle with this Christological reading. So he is really anxious to apply the text to us. I just got, I think, a new edition of Calvin's sermons on First and Second Timothy. And I remember the first time I looked at those, being as a sort of zealous seminary student, very interested in 19th and early 20th century biblical theology, Voss and, and his successors and those folks, Ritter, Voss and the like, reading Calvin and being a little frustrated and disappointed that he wasn't doing just what they had done. And your explanation actually makes sense of why he preached those texts the way that he did, that isn't as it might first seem man-centered, it's really, as we were saying earlier, an expression of his, what I would call, covenantal hermeneutic, that the unity of the covenantal people of God and faithfulness and unity of his dealings with the covenantal people of God. I would say within that is also then his accommodation principle, that God Ooh, accommodates really you know, to human capacity. And so these sort of natural points of history or the physical properties of an image or even visible things are the way that God has, you know, accommodated to help humans understand. Even the fact that God would become flesh and become incarnate in Christ is, you know, speaks to that. And so those are very important principles for Calvin. And, you know, edification is by far, like he's really looking for an edifying reading and he wants the richest, widest, broadest edifying reading. And so he'll argue if you go too quickly to that Christological reading, even though that may be true, a true reading, he would say, you know, you've missed, you skipped over all these other edifying principles of what God's trying to reveal in a scriptural text and how God wants to show you who God is and how God acts with God's people. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. One of the things I think, I guess I'm asking a question here, is that he was driven to this way of reading scripture in part because he was a humanist. And as a humanist, he was taught to appreciate the value of the created world and the value of humans as humans, and that God used humans to reveal Scripture. That humans are, you know, essential to the story of redemption. God the Son became incarnate and is true man. All of that's really important to him, so that he really is convicted that you're not doing justice to the text if you don't really account for the reality of real sense experience and real yeah. human lived experience. I mean, an interesting example of thinking about some aspects of that is to look at comparison and contrast of how Luther and Calvin interpret Psalm 8. So Psalm 8 is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name out of the mouths of babes, you know, who's the son of man that you're mindful of him, and then you have given him dominion. So Luther walks through this psalm. It's all prophecies of Christ. You know, O Lord, our Lord, he says as, O Yahweh, O Adonai, which is the two natures of Christ. And then he says, you know, who is man that you're mindful of him is the passion of Christ. And then, you know, you have given him dominion as Christ's ascension, resurrection ascension. So, but what's really fascinating about that is he does say it's all about the human, which is actually, by the way, a very Jewish reading, that this is all about God's original intention for creation, that God intended humanity to be the height of creation. He does not mean that for then you can exploit nature or creation. He means that to be good stewards of creation. And so, like, if you go back to what you're talking about, Hunius, Agidius Hunius the Lutheran, when he looks at 
Calvin's reading of this, which is actually exactly how Jewish readers read it, I mean, like this really kind of hymn to the greatness, you know, the great potential of humanity, which Calvin means like God's intended order of created order, God's intended purpose of human beings. And he does mean like the fall does disrupt that, but you can't lose sight of the good of creation and what God originally intended. And so it ends up, you know, in having eclipsed almost completely this Christological reading of the, say, prophecy of the saving events of Christ and that being all about the human instead of Christ, you can see why a Luther Nagidius would say, what are you doing? You've just messed up one of our classic psalms <laughs> that belong to the church for Christ and yeah. you've given a Jewish reading. But going back to what we've said before, what he does, Kevin loops it all around at the end, you know, and he says, you know, but we've fallen. So who has restored us to that original glory? How do we come back to that original intention of God? And of course, that's through Christ. And so ultimately, he does give this Christological reading. Although as happens with people who critique, Cunius kind of ignores that part of it and just pays attention to how most of his commentary is about how this is about the glory of humanity. Well, yeah. And he's got his own confessional agenda that he has to pursue. And, that's right. And he needs to sort of demonize the archetypal bad guy, Calvin. One of the most interesting things that you uh, argued implicitly today, and you argue explicitly in your first book, and I assume in the second, which I will read, and that is that Calvin is a kind of transitional figure. He's not modern, and I appreciated that you noted that a minor crusade of mine, you know, we Reformation studies often gets described as early modern, and I, and I always have to tell the students, well, okay, but these aren't really modern people, right? They still look at the world. Luther throws ink pots and fights. He thinks the devil is rattling around in the attic. That's not really – anyway, you, you take my point. But he is a transitional figure. There are ways in which he's looking at the text in ways that – this is your major thesis – distinguish him from the prior ways of looking at the text. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Steinmetz student. So if I'm true to my roots, then I would have to say Luther and Calvin are primarily medieval yeah, men. And, amen. And I think that's true. I mean, because, <laughs> because, you know, they don't know about modernity coming around the corner. They are shaped by their medieval context. There's no dispute on that. But then I think you're right. So I try to walk this fine line of saying, yes, they are medieval men. Calvin is a medieval man. That's what shaped him. I mean, including humanism and things of that sort. And yet you're right. There's things that are things that will be picked up later. And I would argue they're picked up in different ways that are actually not true to what Calvin intended. But say an emphasis on authorial intention or the emphasis on historical context and literary context and all these rules that historical criticism then takes up to basically actually piecemeal the text to kind of disintegrate it or break it up, which could not ever be Calvin's purposes. Like his whole reason for paying attention is actually about the unity of the Testaments and how to read well. So while you can say there's certain sort of exegetical principles that then get picked up by modern historical criticism, the intention of those are almost diametrically imposed. Like the intention yeah, he's of sitting yeah. underneath the text, right? That's right. Whereas a modern critic has placed himself or herself over the text. That's right. And as Steinmetz pointed out, I don't know when that was. Superiority of historical, yes. or, yeah. Yeah. What Pre-critical exegesis, yeah. Whatever year that essay was, I don't remember now. I want to say it was really early. 1980? Uh, no, no. Yeah, I, I so should know. <laughs> if the listener hasn't read that essay, this will change your life. Superiority I think. of Pre-critical Exegesis. Yeah, <laughs> Superiority of Pre-critical Exegesis by David Steinmetz. It's, I think it was published more than a few times. There's a PDF online. If you search for it, you should be able to find that. So I would encourage you to read that. And that was a case that he was making, mm -hmm. that in modernity, we lost some valuable tools and attitudes and stances. That's right. 
they took some of these similar principles of exegesis that Calvin had, but took them out of the framework in which for Calvin they made sense and took them out of the sort of basic commitment. So if you no longer have commitment that scripture is a divine revelation, if you no longer have a commitment that scripture is a unitary communication, but now you're piecemealing, if you no longer have a sense of scripture's authority, these all look very, very different than any way that Calvin would have operated with these principles. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.